Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Brand Called You. So yesterday, I woke up to really sad news. Actually, an old boyfriend of mine had passed away, I, I learned through, through an email. And um, I was so saddened, and I realized it's because even though it was 30 years ago, um, by far, he was my best intellectual sparring partner I've ever had in my life. And um, my friends were furious when I broke up with him. They didn't understand it. And I tried to explain to them that it was a kind of sexism I, I'd never encountered. Um, he had been born into a very Orthodox Jewish family, you know, generations of, of rabbis. And it, it was as if it wasn't overt. He was very overtly considerate. He cooked for me and so forth. But he had this basic assumption that his, his world was the one that mattered. And every single interaction that we had as a result of that was really predicated on that thesis. And I, I just couldn't go through with it. But I remember the the animosity and the rage that my friends, you know, they 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 hurled at me because I had made this decision and they didn't understand it. I don't think I understood it fully. I didn't understand that what I was dealing with was unconscious bias, but I understand it now, thanks in large measure to our guest here today, Kate Zernike, who has written a stunning book called The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT and the Fight for Women in Science. Um, Kate has been a reporter for the New York Times since 2000. And her stories about Al-Qaeda before and after the 9-11 attacks have helped win her team a Pulitzer Prize. But before she started working for the New York Times, she was at the Boston Globe and chanced upon a pretty remarkable story in 1999, um, a story about MIT and their admission that it had discriminated against women on its faculty, particularly the scientists. And that story ultimately became this book. And I can't, I'm so excited to have you here, welcome. Thank you, I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I, I mean, um, I'm just, I guess let's just go back for a second. You're in Boston, it's 1999. Were you a science writer at the time? For the no, Google? I was covering higher education. Um, and I like to say that I started covering higher education in September of 1998. And um, my father at the time, who was a physicist, said to me, oh, you should look up the work that this woman, Millie Dresselhaus at MIT is doing to get more women into physics. And I was like, yeah, yeah whatever. I mean, I really blew him off because I thought, oh, like she's probably got some program going and like, discrimination, what does that even look like? And then I got a call for, or I got a tip from someone in the newsroom saying there was something going on with women and discrimination at MIT and I should call this woman, Nancy Hopkins. So I called and Nancy said, well, in fact, MIT is gonna admit, admit that it discriminated against women. And I was like, wow, that's really remarkable. Um, and then she said it was because this she and this other, this group of women had actually gone and collected the data to show how they were discriminated against. So they had, you know, lab space and, um, you know, salaries, obviously, and, and uh, bonuses and promotions and grants and stuff like that. And I thought, well, that's like, that appealed to me because here was this group of female scientists, like really leaning into their science, right? Like it, it struck me as actually kind of funny. They had sort of hacked the system and like figured out how to show discrimination. Um, so I went over and I talked to Nancy and she told me about how she had, you know, I said, how did this all start? And she's like, well, I, you know, I had less lab space. And I was like, well, how did you know you had less lab space? She said, well, I measured. I said, you measured? And she's like, yeah, with a tape measure. And I was like, oh, really? Anyway, so it turned out she had measured all the space. And the, the tape measure, when I wrote the story, the story kind of took off in amazing ways that none of us expected. But I think it took off because because of that tape measure, because it was, it was as if the tape measure could give women 
what you're talking about, like almost that, you know, they, they have the sense there's discrimination, but they can't put their finger on it. And like, we all know that there've been all these anti-discrimination laws passed. So how could it actually be discrimination? Um, but this tape measure kind of allowed people to identify what they were talking about. But as you kind of hinted at, these women were also talking about a, a, a new kind of, at the time, a new kind of discrimination, which was this unconscious bias, right? In the sense that, um, that these women had was that they were treated very well as junior faculty members. Um, but then once they got tenure, they were sort of, you know, the women were kind of pushed aside. Whereas the men who got tenure, it was like the men were identified for like, oh yeah, that guy's going to be the department chair. And that guy's on a path to be, you know, Nobel prize winner. And this guy's going to be, you know, head of this thing or that thing. There'd never been a woman as head of any department in the sciences at MIT. Um, and so the women described it as being marginalized, right? And they, it was like, you know, not, they were assumed that they, that they weren't as ambitious, that they weren't as, as bright, that they weren't, that their accomplishments didn't matter. You know, you had to be twice as good. And so they were really talking about what you said, which was unconscious bias. Again, that was an unheard of thing at the time. You know, the first big paper on first big academic paper on it was in 1995. So I think that was also what resonated with me. I mean, I was a young reporter at the time and I was like, oh yeah, that thing where you show up at a conference and all the people on stage talking are men. This is how that happens. Cause there's like this network. It, it really is the old boy network that was still very much in operation. I mean, and you have some some haunting stories in your in your book that, you know, painful stories um, of a woman being mistaken for a prostitute at a conference uh, because she keeps going in and out of the scientific sessions. A and black no, woman. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Double a double a double uh, problem. And then <laughs> um, also, um, you know, having a woman suggest um, somebody for a new hire and having them completely not listen to her. And then a man five minutes later suggest, I mean, we've all experienced this outside, yeah. of, yeah. outside of the community, but I think the thing that was so painful for me in reading it was that um, it wasn't that it was happening. It's that we questioned that it was happening as women. Right. And I think also even worse is that now, when you recognize, when you finally recognize it, it's usually, you know, for Nancy Hopkins, and I think for many women, Nancy says it took her 20 years to realize it. And once you realize it, it's like, oh my God, all that time, like, think of what I could have been doing if I were given those resources. And then the time that you put in that these women put in to make the complaint. Um, and they didn't want, you know, they were not women who wanted to complain. They really just wanted to do their science. But then you think like, if I didn't have to take the time to work through all this stuff, think of all the scientific accomplishments I could have done. That's the frustrating thing. I've actually been saying this to people recently because I've heard a lot, I've had a lot of interaction with readers who say a version of what you did, which is like, it's so painful. And I, so sometimes I, I just said to someone, I feel like I have to apologize for people's pain reading the book. And I hope it's not entirely painful. Because I think it's, you know, it's a really fun story. These are great characters. But um, but yes, I think it is like there's a there's a it's almost like a, a stage of anger people go through sometimes well, reading. But, I mean, but your book also has a very important lesson, which is know your accomplishments. Absolutely. Know them. And you know, it, it occurred to me that there I always think there's like a pivotal moment in everybody's life where you can go when for me, I, I was a professional storyteller. I mentioned to you um working in the schools and I was miserable. <laughs> But I was doing it. And I remember getting booked by an education director. And just after she booked me, she said, I'm so glad you're available. I'll put you after the snake guy and before the magician. I remembered suddenly being realizing this is like, I'm just one more thing in the schools. And, and I think that Nancy Hopkins, um, the, the heroine of your book, um, the famous scientist, uh, 
had that moment when she said, you know what, I'm not in the right graduate program. I'm going to drop out and pursue the thing I want to pursue. And I, I found that to be, even though it was sort of just a reference in your book, a, 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 a kind of half a chapter, yeah. but I, it sort of paved that just understanding that she had a greater mission. I don't know how, how that, you know, she did that because it was. Yeah, I mean, at the time. So she goes, you know, Nancy falls in love with, with the study of biology and particularly genetics in a one hour lecture taught by James Watson for in 1963. And it's four months after he and Francis Crick have won the Nobel prize for decoding the structure of DNA. So, I mean, imagine, right? Like you have the man in the field who is like, I'm going to tell you all about this. And she's like, okay, I want to work for this guy. I want to do what he does. And so that's like her first turning point, but she's also got this boyfriend who she knows is likely to become her husband. And so she gets into what she describes as like a love triangle. And so she says like, okay, I'm going to get married and I have to have kids by 30, but I've got this 10 year period when I can do science. And I just want to do as much science as possible. And so she goes to grad school because Watson says you should get a PhD. And she's like, I don't really want the PhD. I just want to do this one experiment. And she drops out of grad school to do that experiment. And to me, that was like, turning, Yeah. And like the men in her life have said to me, that was a real risk that she took, right? She ends up going back to grad school, but it's because this experiment she does is so successful. And thank goodness she does go back to grad school because her husband ultimately leaves her. Um, but, you know, yes, like that was a huge moment for her to say, this is my thing. This is what I want to do. And I'm just like, I'm just going to really consider like what I love about this and go after that thing. There are very few actual examples of overt sexism, but I think a meeting of uh, Crick was one of them, no? Yes. Yeah. So Frances Crick, uh, Nancy's a uh, senior in high, a senior in college at the time, and she's working in Jim Watson's lab. And Frances Crick, who she's never met, suddenly she's excited to meet him because she knows he's coming, but she, he suddenly he pops through a door and he comes up behind her and slams his hands on her breast. And she's like, what are you doing now? And But of course, Nancy's first thought is like, oh God, I hope Francis Crick doesn't feel awkward. You know, it's not like he just abused me, right? But right. then there's another, but, but so that's like an overt thing. But but another thing that people really keep coming back to, and even, even now after I've written the book and like I thought about it, like after I'm done all of the writing, one of the moments that really sticks out to me is um, in roughly 1980, uh, Nancy's asked to, uh, a colleague of hers, a male colleague of hers comes to her and says, I'm going to teach this big genetics lecture. Um, will you, you know, this course, you're a great lecturer. Will you come teach it with me? And she's like, great, fantastic, great. And then the man goes to the head of the department, also a man, and says, you know, Hopkins and I are going to teach this class together. And the head of the department says, no, he was a very like sensitive guy and really cares about good teaching. He's like, nope, Nancy's a great lecturer, but we can't have her do that because undergraduates will not take seriously information from that's given to them from a woman at the head of a lecture hall. And, you know, a lot of people reading the book are like, oh my God, really? Like 1980, that was the year of the, remember the Anjali commercial? Like I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan. Like that was supposed to be women's liberation, you know, the victory period. And, and half of the students on the American campuses were women at that point. Um, but Nancy's thought was, oh God, he's right. And he spared me from embarrassment, right? And I keep thinking, coming back to that moment because I, I actually think we are still in a moment where when a woman says something, it's not taken as seriously. Um, a woman's knowledge is not trusted as much as a man's is. And it's not that anybody is necessary. This goes back to the unconscious thing. It's not that anybody is setting out to do this or is consciously doing this. It's just happening. It's our culture and it's still our culture. And that's what we need to reckon with. Yeah, but I always wonder if, is it that that they're not believing us because of, 
of this unconscious bias or because we still question our own value? Like, I wonder if, if I, if I just had that one extra bit of confidence, if I, I don't know, I always wonder which comes first, the chicken or the egg. So I think women, you know, there's that old line about how women, you know, Ginger Rogers had to do everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. Um, so there's a little bit of that. And I think the other version of that is women have to work twice as hard to do, you know, to get the same recognition. So I, yes, I think that is true. But I also think like women have to have twice as much confidence. Yeah. And then you get into the problem of confidence in women is seen as arrogance. So, and again, like it's not, I, I worry sometimes that, you know, I've had great response to the book from men, I should say, but sometimes I feel like maybe this is my own bias um, because maybe I'm skeptical, but sometimes I think people are skeptical, like really, do people really biased? And I'm like, yeah, they really are. Like I was inclined to think they weren't even when, you know, when Nancy did the story and even writing the book, I was like really determined to prove this. Cause I was like, well, is this really real? Yes, it's real. And it's not, it's not the fault of anyone. One of the, the nicest thing that Nancy said to me about the book was she said, I never understood my own life until I read your book. Um, and oh. what she meant by that was, I know it's such a dreamy thing to say. Oh, I just got chills. Yeah, exactly. What she meant by that was that she understood that everyone was kind of, you know, she was so miserable and she really doesn't think like, did I waste my time there? And instead she now sees that this was really like everyone was playing the role that our culture assigned to them. Right. Like they just kind of, it's sort of like what you were saying about the boyfriend, right? Like it was kind of your friends were saying, how can you do this? And you were trying to explain this thing, but it's like, we can't see it because it's kind of in our water, you know, it's not. And, and, and my boyfriend reminded me that it was passed down to us from the ancient of ancient biblical traditions. This Absolutely. is, you know, it takes thousands of years, um, not, not hundreds, thousands, but I, yeah, I mean, there's so many things I, I wanted to ask you that I'm like you, the daughter of a, a cancer. I, my father was a cancer research scientist and, but, but I saw so many parallels to Nancy's story and my father, because he was one of these uh, pure scientists who had zero savvy, zero political savvy. He had zero capacity to tell his own story. He had a brilliant um, peptide that he discovered that reversed malignancy that reawakened immune response. And he oh. was never able to get the recognition or the grants he needed largely due to his own um, inability to be competitive in a way that um, I saw his, and he he suffered some of the same humiliations like getting his lab space taken away from him, getting it reduced. And I, I don't mean to suggest that his life was as difficult as a woman's, but I, I definitely saw parallels. It was very interesting to this me. This is a really important point because one of the things, so I call the book The Exceptions, partly because these women are exceptional, right? And they were exceptional in that they could get jobs and they were exceptionally talented and accomplished and bright. Um, but they were, I also call it The Exceptions because as I was reporting the book, um, the women would describe things that happened to me. And, and again, you say like, well, why didn't you complain? And they're like, well, but I, I thought it was the exception. I thought it was just this one case, right? And one of the things they say is, well, men, men were having this happen to them too. Like men, you know, in Nancy's case, well, I knew that a man had had his course taken away too. So if my course was taken away, like maybe it was it really discrimination. They also thought, by the way, that sexual harassment and sexual discrimination had to mean that some kind of sex had happened, right? Like That's penetration. Right. That's um, right. But, you know, in terms of your father, like, I think that is true. I think, you know, so I, so I struggled with like, how do you put that in context? And I think the answer is that it happens to, yes, that, that it happens to certain people. Um, it, it happens more like, it happens to people who are perceived as maybe weaker or not as aggressive. Um, but the problem is 
that in our culture, women are seen as weaker and less aggressive. So it's easier to do it to women because nobody's going to, there's really much less risk that the person's going to say, wait a minute, stop. And the, and the other thing that my father shared with these women was he was convinced that he would be rewarded based on merit. Right. Right. Well, on I, think I share that with these women. It's not just science. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, as one writer to another, I was fascinated by um, the literary device you used because I felt that you were telling two parallel stories at the same time. The one was um, Nan Nancy's story, but the other one was the, the story of science. And both of them were having an evolution. They, they both went through a beginning, middle and end in a way. Um, and I was just wondering how you figured out how to structure those two. Like, did, was it hard for you to figure out the device that you would use to tell the story? I don't know that I went through, I don't know that I was caught, like, I, I, you know, I certainly had a book proposal that I sold and that the book proposal was, had nothing about like, I'm going to tell the story of science, but um, I did, it's particularly the story of molecular biology and women in science. Yes. I knew that I wanted to tell the story of the context of women in science and place these women in the context of that. So that was one story, but then there's also this interesting story of, um, of modern biology and molecular biology, right? So it's not, you know, biology used to be just like the, you know, putting things into like genus and species and, and, um, so molecular biology really changed things. And, and it was sort of like, oh, that's just kind of an interesting thing to me. And then I realized that no, actually the development of that field ultimately affects Nancy because the field becomes at some point after the um, uh, recombinant DNA is discovered in the early seventies, biology becomes a very lucrative thing because of the biotechnology industry, right? So because DNA actually becomes, you know, now we all know like there's gene therapy and cloning and CRISPR. And um, so that actually affects her because it affects the university. The university becomes much more competitive. What, what the university values becomes more competitive so that uh, people who start companies are suddenly like the way to make it is to start a company. That was not the case when Nancy entered science, entered biology. So I felt like, um, and it changes the city of Cambridge, which is where the story takes place. So to me, I really just wanted to tell as rich a story as possible, like as much of a sort of, I don't know if it's a 360 story as possible. Like I wanted people to really feel what it was like. And I felt so lucky when I, you know, I kind of went off on this tangent on, you know, recombinant DNA and the start of biotechnology and molecular biology. And then it was like, oh no, this actually worked. Like this is part, this is the point, you know? So I'm glad to hear you say that because it was really well, fun. It felt like it was all about discovery. Yes, yes. It was all about discovery, self-discovery in, yep. in women and the, and the school. And experimenting, right? Like your it's social yeah. experiments, it's it's scientific experiments. My favorite moment in every interview with these scientists was to say, how did you discover, like, what made you think you wanted to be a scientist? And they just all get this, like, look yeah. in their eye and they tell you, and like, it's like, they, they wrapped, you know, they talk about like, um, you know, oh, I, the, the periodic table and they start going about the periodic table and how beautiful the periodic table is. It's like, oh my God, like I didn't, you know, I had that about writing, but I didn't have that. Ever. And it's yeah. just wonderful to see that inspiration. I mean, I grew up in, in a family like that. My uncle's license plate said E does not equal MC squared. You know, they were hard, hardcore scientists. And yeah. I loved, and, and I think you, you illuminate that kind of passion. And that was, that was very moving to me as well. But I was curious, um, uh, about the now that MIT, MIT, you know, some of the advances that happened since uh, M MIT admitted um, admitted what what happened. I know you wrote about a, a, an incredible new program called Advance. 
Yeah, yeah. Tell a little about some of the spill out of, of, of yeah. So just to, to sort of catch up the MIT. So this the story. I write the story in the Globe, and you know I'm excited about the story, but I sort of think like this is my little science thing that I'm doing, and it just goes bonkers crazy. Like suddenly, you know, the dean of science shows up the next morning, and CBS Evening News is waiting outside. A camera crew is waiting outside his office, and Nancy picks up her phone, and it's Radio Australia. Um, and then the New York Times put it on its front page. And suddenly, you know, this is before going viral was a thing online. There was no, you know, no real internet the way we have it now. Um, and uh, so the Times putting it on the front page, just suddenly they were, the women and the men in the story were just flooded with emails from across the world saying like, this is my story and this happened to me. So everyone kind of realized, and to its that, that this was a problem and that this was something that was beyond MIT and beyond sort of elite academic institutions. Um, to its credit, MIT really stepped up and said, we're going to be a leader on this. Um, and so they, the president of MIT, who was the one who had, had acknowledged discrimination, he brought together eight of the university, eight other leading universities in this country to, to come up with strategies to get more women into science. And yes, the National Science Foundation started something called the Advanced Program, where they do give grants to institutions, to, to universities to try to get more women. And one of the things they do is do the kind of data collect they fund is that they do the kind of data collection that Nancy did. Um, so I think that has been, you know, a real contributor. Again, to kind of go back to this combination of like, it's about data, but it's also about storytelling. I think that just having this story out there made it an issue in a way that it hadn't been before. And so a lot of the progress we see is just that it changed the conversation. Yeah. Um, and that, so that's huge. I mean, what you do telling stories is what I do. It, it can really matter. It can really make a difference. I mean, we, this has gone by so quickly. I just, I think I just have one last question for you, which okay. is how did the writing of the book transform you both personally, oh and personally, we know, but personally. Um, so I, many different ways, but I was thinking about this a little bit when you were talking about your father, like I was asked, um, I'll, I'll say two different ways. Cause I could probably go on about this for another 30 minutes. Um, good, good. I, was, I was asked at, um, when I, I did an event at the Brattle theater in Cambridge, which was really fun. And my, the person who was doing the questioning said to me, who's an old boss of mine, a man said, what was the hardest part of writing this book? And I was like, oh gosh, and I didn't really have a good answer. And then there were two young women in the audience who got up and asked questions about how you deal with self-doubt. And I tried to answer them and it's really hard to know what to tell them, you know? Um, but that night I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, oh yeah, that was it. The hardest part of this book was to deal with the self-doubt to say like, this is a story I'm going to, I can tell the story. I can do these women proud by telling their story. So that was, that was one thing. Like it really sort of, um, and, and then it, you know, this also goes to your question about the writing about the science, you know, I, I, the first drafts were like, kind of, I felt like I was throwing spaghetti at the wall and my editor would say, um, eh, this part isn't working. And I'd be like, well, why is that? Like, I feel like I'm doing the same thing. Why is this part working and that part not working? And then at a certain point I was like, oh, you know, I'm just really interested in this side tangent about, you know, the birth of the biotechnology industry. And so I'm just going to write about that. And this fight in Cambridge was kind of, you know, quirky characters. I'm just going to write about that. And if she tells me that she doesn't like it, it's fine. So I write this and I, I sent it to her and she was like, oh my God, I love this. And it turned out that, so that was a good experiment. And that it was like, you know what, take a risk, like try something new. Cause sometimes it's rewarded, but also, but then she said, she said, no, no, she said, when she said, so I said, but I, then I finally said to her, like, 
well, why is this working? And that's not. And she said, when it's working, it's because you're telling me a story. She said, when it's not working, it's because you're presenting information like dot, 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 quote, dot, 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 quote, which is sort of a more of a newspaper style of writing. Um, and so that was like, it transformed me in thinking about stories. But the bigger point I'm going to say is that I, um, I started thinking about this book in January of 2018. Um, and partly it was because the Me Too movement was surging. And I was looking at the Me Too movement and thinking like, okay, I'm glad we're talking about this, but this is only part of the problem. And the real underlying problem to all of this is what these women identified, which is that we don't take women as seriously. We still see women as second-class citizens. We don't take their intellect as seriously. Um, and I was, so I thought about the story and how this story, like I wanted to tell the story about these women because to my surprise, it had kind of been forgotten. Um, so that same year I was covering, there was, you remember it was the election of Donald Trump and there were a bunch of women running for Congress. So I was actually, I had a beat at the New York Times covering women in the midterms of 2018. So I spent 2018 writing about women in politics. Then I go on leave and for two and a half years, I am really talking only to women in science. I mean, some men too, but mostly to women in science. Then I come back in January of 2022 uh, to the New York Times and my and I take over the abortion beat, right? Just as Roe v. Wade is about to be overturned. And so for the last, the result is for the last five years, I've done nothing, not really. I've spent most of my professional life talking to women. And that has been transformational because, you know, I really didn't expect this. I, I just... Um, I feel like it's it's not just that I have more confidence because I'm surrounded, I feel surrounded by women, even virtually, you know, sort of in my mind, um, but that I can see a whole range of all these different things that women are doing. And somehow like knowing that there are these women who are really good at geophysics and other women who are litigating abortion law, like that makes me feel a little bit stronger in what I do and stronger in my own voice. And I can't exactly explain why that is, except that I just sort of, I feel a little bit on stronger ground. I guess I feel like I feel on on stronger shoulders, right? We always say we're standing on the shoulders of those who come before us. Those shoulders are pretty amazing and they're women's shoulders. And, and I, I think what you just said before about, um, you know, I think the thing that um, this, this unconscious bias does, the, the greatest thing that it does um, negatively towards us is kills our, our instinct. Um, it, it makes us question our instinct and your your instinct to write about the science and and to follow a particular passion um it, I think is a, as important as the storytelling itself it's it's the beginning of a story yeah and nobody wants to be you know you you think like what if I fail what if I'm humiliated and I think when you start out feeling second class the threat of humiliation the, the risk of that humiliation is so much harder it feels like it feels like such a bigger threat. Oh, this was so much fun. I know, it's so much time fun. Thank you. I mean, you're you're a great you're a great uh, a person to talk to, and I I can't wait to follow your career and um you. see what comes next. I hope it's more. So it's been really more, fun talking. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.